Gazette Newspapers presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now, here's your host, Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Thank you, Scott Geezy, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast, available wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me from the Parting Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York. We're back talking sports in this edition of the podcast. I'll speak with Jason Stark of The Athletic and MLB Network about Tuesday's announcement that no one was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. We'll talk about the Brooklyn Nets with Michael Grady, sideline reporter for Yes Network, which televises the team. First up, high school athletes got some great news last Friday when the state gave the go-ahead for high-risk sports to start on February 1st. I spoke with Dr. Robert Zayas, Executive Director of the New York Public State High School Athletic Association, about the announcement on Tuesday. And that was before Albany and Washington counties announced that it will not allow high-risk sports to start on February 1st. Well, Dr. Zayas, welcome back for your third visit to the podcast. And the third time is a charm. We finally got some good news. Yeah, we sure did. We thankfully on Friday afternoon received guidance from the New York State Department of Health stating that all sports would be given authorization to begin with approval from the local Department of Health. How exciting was it? Was it kind of a little bit of a surprise? Well, I don't know if it was more of a surprise as much as it was exciting. And what I mean by exciting is that we have been working on this for a number of months on behalf of those student-athletes, and I think to be able to give them and their schools the opportunity to participate in all sports this school year has certainly been a goal of ours at the State High School Athletic Association. Very early on, I had talked about trying to find a way to provide participation opportunities for all students in all sports in the uh, upcoming school year, and thankfully, we were given authorization to do just that. What's going to be the key to make this work? Uh, I mean, obviously, face mask, I think, is going to be mandatory, or at least it's going to be make sure people are wearing their face mask while they're sitting on the bench or even if they're playing. Yeah, I think the key to making this work is everybody working together in a collaborative fashion. At no point in time should we have students coaches, parents that are that are not paying attention to the guidance and the protocols that are in place. And really, student-athletes need to make sure that they're avoiding social gatherings when they're not part of the team setting. You know, getting together on the weekends is fun for kids, but we, they need to really make sure that they're responsible. They need to make sure that they're setting a good example and they're serving as a role model for their school community because, I mean, we received authorization to start the season. How we finish the season is going to be completely up to how those student-athletes follow the protocol, procedures, and how much they listen to their coaches and parents. And I think for the most part with some of the fall sports that were played, like soccer, like field hockey, we really didn't, maybe until towards the end, we had, we saw that you know the, the players wearing face masks while they're playing and you know trying to be very careful, and it, it, seemed, it seemed to work. Yeah, you know, that's a big part of the Department of Health guidance is it states that you have to wear a face covering while you're participating in interscholastic athletic activity if you cannot maintain social distance of six feet. And the guidance also makes uh, the statement that unless the student cannot tolerate it during physical activity. I, uh, I, I, I saw a picture of my old high school down in uh, suburban Philadelphia. They just started playing basketball, and I saw they have pictures of the players wearing uh, the mask while they're playing. I, see, I saw a referee in the background also wearing a mask. So it seems to me if they can do it down in Pennsylvania, they sure can do it up here in New York State. Yeah, they're even, you know, I mean, I've, I've had conversations with other executive directors throughout the country, and it's becoming very common to be participating in a face mask. I think 10 months ago, it was such an odd or foreign thing for all of us to even go to the grocery store with a face mask. And I think now it's just becoming more and more. We're, we're all used to it. It's uh, becoming more of what we do in a given day. And uh, I think it's a major part of um really battling this crisis and getting everybody to buy into it. And um, I I think it's something that is going to be with us for a period of time. And if this is what it takes to get the opportunity to play all sports in this school year, I'm certainly on board. Of course, the county uh, 
health departments have to approve this. Uh, have you have the counties reached out to you about uh, some guidance on how to handle things? We released a very comprehensive guidance document yesterday afternoon. Um, it's, it's about 70 pages in length, and we provide an awful lot of individual sport considerations. What should coaches and athletic directors know as they're preparing to host games and participate in these higher-risk activities? Um, and then we've also really brought attention to Department of Health guidance, such as screenings are required, uh, face mask, um, and spectators. So uh, what should officials do? Different things like that. So we haven't had any communication with the county departments of health because really our section executive directors and section leadership is taking care of that communication. How much pressure was did you feel from the parents and the athletes uh, about wanting to get things going here? Because they I mean they could see other states playing games and they're wondering we, we see some low risk sports being played like bowling and we saw soccer and field hockey played in the fall but uh, was there any did you feel any pressure from from parents uh, around the state about you know trying to get this going i don't know so much about pressure but i, I certainly felt like I, I i was hearing from them and i was hearing that you know as a parent they were frustrated with their son or daughter not being able to participate but you know i think we have to rely upon our state officials for that authorization and um in this job that uh of any athletic administrator you, you know criticism is always going to be part of the role everything we do is is seems to be questioned in some form or fashion so i don't ever really worry about that um but i feel bad and i felt bad for the student athletes um, when decisions had to be made that I knew was negatively impacting their happiness and their desire to participate in sports. So that's been something that's been the most difficult part of this whole process. And that dates all the way back to March um, of last year when the very first decision had to be made as far as canceling the basketball and wrestling and bowling championships. And it's been one difficult decision and another bad announcement after bad announcement it seems like for the last 10 months so it was really nice on friday when we got the good news that we were going to be able to start high-risk sports with authorization from the local departments of health um, of course we got good news on august 24th when we were given authorization to start low and moderate risk sports but uh, it's been something that as our association has been working towards this um, it, uh, it's nice to be able to provide those student-athletes and those schools with the opportunity to participate in these activities. What guidelines are there if, let's say, a, a player on a basketball team test, gets a positive test? What, what, uh, what's the protocol then? No different than if a student in a math class or any other class gets uh, a positive test. They'll work with their school administration and work with their local Department of Health. We, as the State High School Athletic Association, don't have any responsibility um, or any really involvement in the contact tracing aspect of um, any COVID positive cases. It's going to be a crazy uh, sports season in high school with this, you know, the, 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 the uh, winter sports getting underway February 1st, and we have fall two, and then the spring. Just how do you worry about how condensed it is, and uh, maybe the, the player safety, especially you know, a player who plays basketball and then maybe goes into football or baseball right after that? You know, I'm not really worried about that because we have. New York State certified and professionally trained coaches that are working with all these student athletes and we have athletic administrators that are in place to really make sure they're paying attention to what's going on with each individual student and each individual program. Um, I'm not concerned with the condensed season as far as the limited amount of time that these students have to play a season. If it's if we can provide a six to eight week season um, throughout the state in, in various sports, then I think we have certainly accomplished the goal of being able to provide all students with the opportunity to play their sport during this school year. I remember last spring when we had to cancel every sport, I received so many emails and text messages and saw so many social media posts from senior athletes that said, I would just wanted to wear my uniform one more time. I just wanted to have a senior night. I just wanted to you know, be with my friends and my coach one last time. And I think to be able to, to provide that to those senior student athletes and these teams is certainly something that we have been working towards, and uh, it's exciting to be able to provide that now at this point in time.
Is it too early to start looking ahead to the 2021-22 sports season, what that's going to look like? No, I mean, I think one of the things I've tried really hard to do throughout this whole crisis is not get too far out ahead of it because I think you can turn an issue into a problem very carefully, very quickly, I should say, by trying to be too far out in front of it. Um, we already are looking at 21-22. Um, we're planning venues, planning state championships. Um, all of our events are planned years in advance. It's not weeks in advance. So um, I think we just have to be careful about trying to predict too far into the future um, because we don't have information to be able to tell us what it's going to look like in the fall of 2021. Right now, our focus is maximum participation for our winter sport athletes, fall season two athletes, and then, of course, our spring sport athletes. And then once we can get past this school year, then we'll obviously be working with state officials and and the leadership of our association to determine what needs to be done to make sure next fall is very successful. Uh, As far as the venues for the host of state championships, like the uh, cool – uh, the arena in uh, Glens Falls, uh, Hudson Valley for the girls' basketball. Uh, contracts get extended, extended because they didn't get a chance to host the last couple of years? Yes, we have been working with each individual venue, and if they want to extend their contract, we've been giving them the opportunity to do that. Okay. Well, Dr. Lance, appreciate a few minutes talking about this. It's finally nice to talk some good news here, and uh, uh, hopefully next time we talk, there will be more good news. Definitely. That's always the goal. All right. Thank you, Dr. Lance. Thank you. Up next, we'll talk about the Baseball Hall of Fame vote with Jason Stark of The Athletic and MLB Network. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast. Sign up for the weekly Daily Gazette sports newsletter. The newsletter features updates on the local sports scene from our staff writers, debate on topics local and national, and reveals the latest guests for the Parting Shots Podcast. The newsletter is free. To sign up, head to dailygazette.com. What's going on, everybody? My name is Freddie Coleman, host of ESPN Radio's Freddie and Fitzsimmons, and you're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Shot. Welcome back to the podcast. Tuesday night, we learned that the Baseball Writers Association of America voted no one for the Baseball Hall of Fame class of 2021. Pitcher Kurt Schilling led the voting at 71.1%, but fell 16 votes short of the 75% needed for induction. On Wednesday, I spoke with Jason Stark of The Athletic and MLB Network about the vote, plus the passing of Hank Aaron. Well, Jason, welcome back to the podcast. we got a lot to cover here in a short amount of time. Let's talk about what happened Tuesday with the Hall of Fame vote. Nobody's getting in the class of 2021. How surprised were you by that? Well, Ken, I can't say that it was a surprise because, you know, now we've got the Ryan Thibodeau Hall of Fame vote tracker that we can study and I think it became clear to me I would say a month ago that nobody was getting in because you can you know when guys start to build momentum it shows up on the tracker and you know the, the four players who were closest last year Kurt Schilling, Omar Vizquel, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens they were all going the other way and uh, you know the fact that Kurt Schilling was losing votes uh, on that Hall of Fame vote tracker, just meant just a simple math said he he needed 20 votes. They weren't there. Um, he, he just can't flip that many no's into yeses in that period of time. So to me, it's always disappointing. The the good news is there's going to be an induction ceremony in July anyway, and that class of 2020 uh, is finally going to get its moment. Yeah. Uh, you know, we know the bond with Bonds and Clemens has been the steroid issue with Kurt Schilling. It's, it's his social media posts. Well, obviously, he's a, a staunch conservative. Uh, he says some things, he tweets some things that uh, really some, somehow go against the grain, uh, what some other people believe. Do you think that had a factor in his uh, missing out by just uh, percentage points? I don't think that's even in debate. I don't think uh, Kurt would even debate it for that matter. Um, and, you know, we've got all kinds of history that tells us what normally would happen. Uh, we had 30 consecutive years, 12 players in a row, who reached 70%, had time left on the ballot, and all got in the next year, the next election. So the fact that Kurt barely 
budged, you know, went from 20 votes away to 16 votes away, tells us, all right, this wasn't normal. It was about... <laughs> it was about the first player in history literally tweeting himself out of the Hall of Fame. And, I mean, I don't really want to start debating Kurt's tweets and, you know, the content of them. Yeah, what, what makes it so difficult for me is that I've known this guy for more than 25 years, know his family, and I'm a Stink Award winner. I've lived through the just the magic of induction weekend, and I'm sad that this is where we are. You just tune out all the rest of it. It just saddens me that just because of Twitter and the invention of Twitter, Kurt Schilling's, he may never be a Hall of Famer now. He um, requested last night to be kept off next year's ballot. Can that request be uh, granted to him? Uh, because he says he wants to wait till the Veterans Committee. Terrell Owens and gets an induction ceremony somewhere else, like like Terrell Terrell Owens did with his pro football team induction. <laughs> I know. Like, hey, we we're actually in the same situation with Marvin Miller. Yeah. Because you know Marvin's day hasn't come yet, and his family has been clear that it believes it should honor his wishes and not show up at the ceremony. And so, that, like, we still don't know more than a year after he got elected how the Hall is going to handle that. I'm sure somebody's going to show up and acknowledge it. If Kurt Schilling were to get elected and refuse to appear, um, which I hope he doesn't, then somebody would have to accept it and acknowledge it. But, like, are we really living it through this? Is this happening in real life? Yeah. Apparently. Yeah, well, going through a pandemic, so anything's possible at this point. So, <laughs> uh, Buster Ollie tweeted uh, Wednesday morning that uh, moving forward, the baseball writers would be best served by insisting the Hall of Fame apply the character clause itself. Let the uh, HOF declare which players have passed its character test before forwarding the ballot to eligible players to the writers. Do you think the character test should be a part of this uh, uh, ballot? What kind of character test would we have? I, you know, like I would love to have more guidance. Um, when the PED era was raging on the ballot, the baseball writers formally requested that the Hall give us guidance on what we should do about that whole era. And they said, no thanks, you guys figure it out. Yeah. Um, so much easier for them if we just figure it out. And I, like, we can request that again, but of course, that's, they'll say the same stuff. Um, there are just certain areas they're not comfortable wading into, and this would be one of them. Um, it's really difficult to know how to apply that clause. Uh, this year especially, I said this on LB Network on Tuesday, I, I literally found myself lying awake four in the morning trying to decide what's the right way to handle this. Um, it's murky under any circumstances. It was particularly murky when, all right, let's just use Schilling as an example. You really think when they wrote up that clause, they were, they were imagining many years later we'd be trying to apply it to a guy tweeting 13 years after he left through a pitch? Yeah. Like, this is it's just an impossible situation to be in, and it's impossible to know 
any good way to apply that rule. And I, like, I can tell you how I applied it, Ken. Um, in the end, after thinking about it a lot, I thought, I'm just going to vote on the people I covered and the careers they had. And I honestly can't tell you if that's the right way to do it or the wrong way to do it. It's just the way that I did it. Yeah. What does it say about 14 members uh, of the Baseball Writers Association return blank ballots? You know, people can vote whoever they want to vote. Uh, it's America. Um, you think about all the elections we have in this country. People step into the ballot box with all sorts of stuff in their head and all kinds of reasons why they vote the way they vote. And that's part of the country that we live in. And it, it's part of Hall of Fame voting, too. I, I would never vote that way. And the, the reason I would never vote that way is I feel like a blank ballot has an outsized impact. It, it, remember, now, we're living in a world of 75%. So every blank ballot, it takes three yes votes to balance out every no vote. So 14 blank ballots, it takes 42 yes votes to counter to balance those 14 blank votes. And, you know, people want to vote that way. All right, that's cool. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I could never vote that way. I could never do that. I'd rather crumple the ballot in a, in a ball and see if I can sink a three-pointer in my <laughs> wastebasket. Because you're, you're, I mean, but technically, it's just a, it's just a ballot. Yeah. Um, in reality, it has an outsized impact. It's making it much more difficult for the players who are on that ballot to get elected. And I don't want to do that. I think it's better for everybody if somebody gets elected. Yeah. Well, when we have the ceremony in July, it's going to be, uh, unfortunately, a sad time for the number of Hall of Famers who won't be there. We've lost a lot in the past uh, year, especially recently, Hank Aaron. Uh, Tommy Lasorda. Talk about Hank Aaron, what his legacy is, and what he went through. Because, I mean, I was a kid when he broke the record, and I had no idea until later what he went through uh, with uh, the racist letters he was getting from uh, people. Boy, to start trying to sum up the impact of Hank Aaron, how, how long is this podcast? <laughs> we take a while. Uh, can I first just start by saying what a sad year, what a sad time. It's been, I, I, I truly cannot imagine Cooperstown without Hank Aaron and Joe Morgan and Al Kaline and Don Sutton, yeah, this whole group. Yeah, but not, you know, not everybody that we've lost has been healthy enough to make it to Cooperstown in the last year or two. But um, I mean, those names we just named, they were su had such a presence on induction weekend. It's really sad to me and unimaginable to me to think of them not being there. All right, now let's talk about Hank Aaron. Uh, outside of Jackie Robinson, there is no one in the history of baseball, maybe the history of sports, who has had the impact on the, the whole issue of race in America that Hank Aaron had. Um, what he went through, what he lived through, uh, what what America forced him to live through, the way he handled it, the, the character, the grace, the dignity, the respect it commanded. Um, I've seen I've seen that respect firsthand in Cooperstown, New York, and he earned all of that. Uh, just he was an amazing man. Just like I said, I, I was a kid, and I, I remember watching the game on NBC that night. It was just an amazing moment. Uh, and, and I think also the way he handled uh, the record being broken by uh, Barry Bonds. There was a lot of you know he, he wasn't at the game itself, but he did do a video presentation. Yes. And the way he handled that whole situation, because a lot of people weren't thrilled that Bonds broke the record because of uh, these, you know, obviously he was accused of using steroids and all that stuff, but uh, the way he handled it with, with class, that just showed how much of a gentleman he was. Yeah, no doubt. Pure class. And, you know, Hank Aaron, to me, was the legend of legends. And, um, you know, when, uh, we mentioned I, I won the Spink Award. I was honored on induction weekend in 2019. And, um, you know, one, one of the 
things that goes with that is, uh, you know, you find yourself in a room with all these legends. And so that Sunday before the induction ceremony, I was sitting with Jim Tomey. And Tim Mead of the Hall of Fame came strong up to him and tapped him on the shoulder and said, Hey, Jim, uh, we would like you to help Ank Aaron onto the stage and then sit next to him at the ceremony. And I saw the look on Jim Tomey's face, and that look said it all. Um, again, there's, this was a room full of legends, but then there was Hank Aaron. He was different. He was special. There was a reverence for that man, and it was written all over Jim Tomey's face. And I, I've had a chance to talk to Jim about it since, uh, just a few weeks ago, actually. And this is... Hank was, was still alive and well at that point, and Jim told me, it was one of, told me that day was one of the greatest days of his life because he got to spend it with Hank Aaron. Yeah. And then one other person we, we touched on before we uh, called it today here is uh, Tommy Lasorda, the Dodgers manager. I think the last of the character managers we'll probably see in baseball. He made a great manager, won a couple World Series, a Hall of Famer. He had ties here. He pitched a year here in Schenectady with the Blue Jays, had a 25 strikeout. Uh, performance uh, on uh, May thirty May thirty first, nineteen forty eight. Uh, what was the sort of like? He was, I mean, we saw the character, but how great of a manager was he? <laughs> uh, you, you think after he struck out twenty five, somebody asked the opposing manager what he thought of Tommy Lasorda's performance? <laughs> that would have been good, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a legendary Tommy uh, Tommy rant. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Well, well, when we got all the words that were in there, they have to be. Uh, Believe that a family program, but um, you know people talk all the time about Tommy was sort of the character, but Tommy was sort of the manager. There's a reason that guy's in the Hall of Fame, and I, you know he's so different than the managers that we come across now, who are so polished and analytical, and you know many of them are always corporate. Yeah, um, Tommy commanded the room in the way managers aren't allowed to command it anymore. And because of that, you know, he had this connection with his favorite players that was different than almost anybody else you will run across. Uh, the, the crazy jokes they would play each other on each other and the stuff he would allow them to do to him, the stunts and the tricks they would pull on him. Like, that doesn't happen now. It'll no, never happen no. again. Uh, and because of that relationship, Tommy was able to motivate, I think, in a way that other managers, was different than other managers, let's put it that way. And 1988, that team winning the World Series is the ultimate example. They beat the 88 Mets in the NLCS and then the 88 A's in the World Series. And like if those teams played 100 times, I, 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 the, the A's and the Mets win that series 80 times. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, Tommy could play the nobody thought we could do this but us card better than anyone ever. And he loved to play it. And that team is the shining example of what Tommy Lasorda was all about and the magic he could work as manager. Yeah, yeah that's amazing. I just, no, no, you won't see any other manager fighting the Philly Fanatic anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is like people thought that was a joke. No, that no. was a, that was an us against them thing too. <laughs> Even the other mascots hate us. He got oopy. No kidding, he, was. He, he got oopy thrown out of a game in Montreal. <laughs> yeah, that's just criminal. You people are the best. <laughs> well, Jason, appreciate a few minutes. Uh, sorry, we had the little technical issue there, and but we'll, we'll make it work here. No problem. Ken, yeah, I'm sorry about the, uh, the technical glitches. That um, and that's kind of the, the, the miracle of podcast technology is we figure it out and we keep plowing forward. That's right, Jason. Appreciate a few minutes, and uh, let's talk again soon, my friend. Okay, enjoy, right. Ken. Thanks so much. Right, thanks. We're moving over to the basketball court as we talk about the Brooklyn Nets with Yes Network sideline reporter Michael Grady. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast.
Hi, this is Miles Reed, editor of the Daily Gazette. These are difficult times. For most of us, the coronavirus crisis has been a time of unprecedented upheaval, uncertainty, and fear. What does it all mean for our health, our families, our jobs, and our futures? At the Daily Gazette, our journalists have been working tirelessly to answer these questions and many more that have come up during this whole pandemic. How many people have tested positive locally? How many have died? Has anyone died in the local nursing homes? Now, in these difficult times, we're turning to you to support our work by purchasing a subscription or making a donation to help fund our daily efforts. With your support, these are the questions we're continuing to report on. Every day, our reporters and photographers have been working the streets and the phones to answer these critical questions. And every day, they answer the bell with their timely and well-documented reports from the front lines in the region. Behind the scenes, the rest of our editorial team, including our sports writers, copy editors, and digital producers, have been wholly focused on covering the COVID-19 story. During this critical time, everyone here at the paper is working to provide important news and information to keep the community safe and connected. But our ability to serve our community is being threatened by some economic challenges posed by the pandemic. We have stay-at-home orders, business closures, and school shutdowns, and they're contributing to the massive instability in the local business landscape. Despite all of these changes, the Gazette will remain committed to serving the community for many years to come, just as we've been doing unfailingly for the past 125 years. So please go to thedailygazette.com and donate or purchase a subscription to the Daily Gazette. Thank you, be well, and please keep reading. Hi, this is Rob Keaton, head coach of the Albany Empire. You are listening to the Party Shots podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Shot. Hi, and welcome back. The Brooklyn Nets are a team on the rise with Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and the recently acquired James Harden leading the way. On Monday, I spoke with Michael Grady, the Nets sideline reporter for Yes Network, about the team. Michael, appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast here. We, uh, we're taping on Monday because obviously a lot of things could change between now and then, but I uh, appreciate you coming on for a few minutes. Absolutely. Good to be on. I appreciate it. What about this uh, team now, the way it's constructed with uh, Harden, with uh, Durant, with Irving? I mean, it's sort of like a dream team they're putting together here in Brooklyn. Yeah, and uh, I guess the misconception about dream teams is that you, you hit on all cylinders right out of the gate. Um, when the truth is, it takes some time to build that continuity. It takes some time to build that familiarity, that trust, all those kinds of things, and um, understand one another as players and uh, all the nuances, the minutiae and, uh, of the game within the game. And so those things absolutely take time. But what they're, what they're building, the roster that they have, um, particularly those top three players, is something that they hope is going to be special, and um, they're going to approach it with a with a uh, with a seriousness um, for the ultimate goal. So, no, it's it's an exciting time for um, Nets fans and basketball fans, but there definitely will be some uh, some peaks and valleys along the way as they figure things out. Of course, there was a lot of excitement going into the season, uh, Michael, with the uh, that Kevin Durant was going to return from his Achilles injury, and you had Kyrie Irving. So there was yeah that genuine excitement that Brooklyn was is building towards something, and then you add another piece in James Harden. What does it mean? It seems like the Nets want to be the team in New York where as you know, the Knicks have been dominant for years, and it looks like they could be that team for New York. Yeah, you know, I mean, their goal is to win a championship. Um, the Knicks have been, you know, while they're relevant in the hearts of a lot of fans and, the, you know, uh, for the history and those type of things, um, they haven't won anything. You know, in a while. And I don't think the goal from a Nets perspective is to go out there and be the talk of New York. So let's, let's acquire Kevin, let's acquire Kyrie, and let's acquire James with the hope that we generate more fans in the city than what the Knicks are getting. Um, that's, that's absolutely, absolutely not the goal. They want to win a championship. Um, they want to, hoist the trophy at the end of the season. They want to go to an NBA Finals. They want to do something that they haven't done in their NBA franchise history. And so that's the motivation behind the signings and and bringing in these big names and taking risks with these moves to try to figure things out 
And uh, if, you, if you accumulate fans, if you steal some fans along the way, that's great. But that's that's not the goal. The goal is to uh, to get that Larry O'Brien trophy at the end of the season. Obviously, with three superstars there, I mean, a lot of people wonder about are they going to be able to share the ball? Can they, you know, maybe put their egos aside and be able to say, you know, distribute the offense uh, uh, around, have a nice balance? Yeah. Yeah, you know, sacrifice is the word that's been thrown around a lot, and you're going to need sacrifice in, the, in this particular situation. But you also need that sacrifice with any big three. Um, and Miami's big three, Chris Bosh had the sacrifice. He was the man in Toronto. Um, and it's just a situation where he was playing with Dwayne Wade and LeBron James where he had to take on a little bit more of a different role, be aggressive on the defensive side of the ball, pull down rebounds, and when asked to score, he had to be able to do that. Um, you know, Kevin Durant joining the Golden State Warriors, you know, there was some sacrifice from Clay Thompson uh, in that particular situation, not getting the touches he normally sees, and Kevin Durant navigating that along with Steph Curry. And so it's going to be no different here. Uh, each of these guys are capable of scoring 30 points every single night. Kevin continues to do that. I mean, he's you know he's, he's the guy, the offense, you know, is going to continue to run through him. They're going to give him his touches. Kyrie's going to be continue to be aggressive. James is the, is the new guy on the scene. And him being such a talented facilitator, that's kind of been the role that he's kind of stepped into since he joined the team. So the last outing, he only had two shot attempts in the first half. I think he finished with eight shot attempts for the game. You know, he was a little bit more aggressive in finding a shot in the fourth quarter. But he was all about being a facilitator. So from that standpoint, the sacrifice is on, you know, James Harden. Uh, and they'll be nice where Kyrie is going to be more of a facilitator. It'll, it'll, there'll be an ebb and flow to it over the course of the season. But doing something special when you're talking about three superstars uh, does not come without sacrifice. How has uh, Kevin Durant looked? Obviously, we, we mentioned here earlier that he's coming off the Achilles injury and caused, uh, causing the mess all of last season. Uh, how has he looked uh, coming off of that? He's looked like an MVP candidate. Um, Kevin Durant has been amazing to watch night in and night out to where, uh, you know, yes, a casual basketball fan. If you're watching the game and you tell a casual basketball fan, one of the guys in this game is coming off of a terrible Achilles injury, uh, no one would be able to point him out. And so that's how good he's looked this season, averaging over 31 points a game. Um, he looks like an MVP candidate. Uh, he is an MVP candidate at this point in the season. So he's just real special to watch. He's impossible to defend. His release point on his shot makes it very difficult for anybody to affect his shot. Um, his shot looks the same. Make or miss. His mechanics um, look the same. He is a, um, he's just someone who, who really takes his craft absolutely seriously and has a very, very, very committed approach to every practice, every rep, every shoot around. So he, he's been he's been really amazing to watch and set the tone for the next team. Kyrie Irving has been a, an interesting situation. I mean, he, did, he just returned the lineup after taking some time off, uh, maybe some personal issues, maybe with what happened on uh, January 6th. I, I know he didn't want to speak to the media before the start of the season. Where is he at right now? I mean, is he trying to find himself uh, with you know, stuff away from the court, or is, is that affecting him on the court? You know, uh, it, it hasn't affected what I've seen on the court um, at all. Uh, off off the court is, is the players are behind him. Um, there, it's it's hard to get in anybody's head, but I can speak for my you know speaking for myself. You know, balancing work and then also witnessing what, what's been going on in the world. Um, particularly going back into the you know the summer and the George Floyd situation, the Breonna Taylor situation, the Mont Aubrey situation, um, uh, the, the, the political climate, um, the conversations being had at that time. I can speak for myself that it was very difficult, you know, to maintain a clear focus uh, at work, and that's just announcing in television and that type of thing. So, Kyrie, given the platform that that he is on, and the ways that he makes himself available to people in his community, also witnessing what's happening in the world. Um, I, I can't imagine how difficult it had to be for him, given how much he does um, for undeserved communities uh, and, 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 and others. You know, he, he gave a lot of women money to, um, you know, the WNBA and the women who decided not to play due to COVID, who felt like they were forced in a situation where they needed to play. Some of them had medical conditions and, and felt like it was unsafe to go out there. He donated to the money to the WNBA in, in 
that cause uh, gave, gave, gave a lot for, co for COVID relief efforts. Um, uh, he's just done a lot. And that you feel the weight of, of all of that and the people that you're trying to help, the conversations that are being had out there, the, there even with the money and resources that he has, there's a helplessness. Um, at the same time, given the given the magnitude of everything that seems to be going on, um, he, you know the the announcement that he wasn't going to play or that he was going to take time off came after came um, immediately following the insurrection at the, in, the, in the Capitol. So just from that standpoint alone, it can weigh heavily on 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 a player's mind. And everybody's different. You know, one player may not feel that way. Another guy may feel an enormous amount of weight. You know, one guy may be perfectly fine talking to teammates or talking to family or talking to a therapist, whatever it may be. Somebody may go through those same channels and still feel like the weight of the world on their shoulders. And then if you also add the fact that, as he said, his words, that he's dealing with a personal family issue. So you have what's going on in the world. Then you have a personal family issue. And I know people, you know, will point to the that, the, the birthday footage and the video or whatnot. Um, uh, and you know, the decision to have a party with multiple people without a mask is, uh, is, is one, is, you know, is, is, is one conversation. But at the same time, even if you're going through a tough time, family involved, uh, you know, his father's birthday, his sister's birthday, you're going to attend, you're going to participate in that type of stuff. So I, I only say that because some people are saying, well, he went to this birthday party. How could he have been dealing with something? I think that's silly. So I say all this to say what's going on in the world, having a tough family issue, you know, issue that he's dealing with, and then balancing basketball on top of that uh, can be extremely, extremely difficult. And so that whole time his teammates were completely behind him. There was some confusion, obviously, um, uh, with the front office and, you know, the coaching staff in terms of when he's going to return and, and details and different things like that. But they feel like they're in a good place now. Sean Mark said in a, in a recent interview that he's in as good a place that he's been with Kyrie in terms of the relationship. And so the hope is that that, you know, continues, that there is, you know, balance in his, not only Kyrie's life, but the rest of the players, and um, that they focus on the task at hand. But it's things like that that remind you that there are bigger things in life than basketball. I know we're a month into the season and Steve Nash uh, has come in, uh, no head coaching experience, but to have these superstars with him, does that make his job easier, or does it make it a little more difficult uh, trying to manage things? It, it, depends, it depends on someone's definition of easier. If you're coaching a team that's um, very bad uh, and you're struggling and you're losing games night in and night out, you know, that's, you know, that's tough. Uh, that's tough. And you're also worried about potentially getting fired from that job. You're going out there, you're playing all these teams, and a superstar here, a superstar there. Like, that's tough if you're coaching a bad team with not a lot of talent. Uh, if you're coaching a good team that has a lot of talent, you know, that's great. But the Nets started, you know, the season, you know, the, the, their era with the big three with two straight losses to the Cavaliers. So these other teams in the NBA, they are coming for you. And they have talent themselves. And so Colin Sexton is not a scrub. Andre Drummond is not a scrub. Uh, the Nets are playing the Miami Heat. Um, or had two, you know, a game Saturday against the Miami Heat, a game Monday against the Miami Heat. Bam Adebayo is no scrub. You know, the guys on that, you know, Goran Dragic is no scrub. You know, it's tough to win games in the NBA. Plus, you're trying to figure out continuity. So if you struggle with the big three, James, Kyrie, Kevin, if you struggle, you lose some games. There's nothing easy about that. I mean, you're taking criticism from all different avenues. Criticism for a guy that people wondered, should he be given this job since he has no coaching experience? So he's trying to figure out and navigate the waters of being a head coach. Clearly, you would love to start your career as a head coach with three superstars. Yeah. But I wouldn't, character, I wouldn't characterize it as um, easy because he has a lot to figure out. There are a lot of voices in that locker room, not only players, but, you know, it's Mike D'Antoni, who's been very influential on Steve Nash, um, obviously coached him back in the day, uh, Jacques Vaughn, Emmanuel Doka. You know, there, there are a lot of good basketball minds in there, and, um, and there's a lot to figure out. So... It's a challenge when you step into a situation, first-time head coach, and the expectation is to win an NBA championship. And if you fall short of that, it's on you. Yeah. 
the Atlantic Division at the uh, Nets are in very tough. You have the Sixers leading it right now. Yeah, Boston's always been tough. The New York, New York Knicks seem to be improved, and even though Toronto's in last place right now, there's a, obviously they won a championship a couple of seasons ago. I mean, where do you see Brooklyn finishing in the uh, division? Uh, I, I see them finishing um, probably just behind uh, Philadelphia. I, I feel like Philadelphia is on a mission. Um, even though they have a new head coach in Doc Rivers, they have continuity, which is extremely important in the NBA. And the Nets are building this. I also feel like the Nets, especially given the injury history of Kyrie Irving and um, Kevin Durant coming off the Achilles, and James from a conditioning standpoint, these guys aren't guys that are going to be playing night in and night out. You know, Kevin's going to take some time. You know, take some time off. He, you know, he he uh, didn't play that second game against the, uh, the Cavaliers. James will probably take some time off here or there. Same thing with Kyrie Irving. Uh, and they're still, they still have a couple of roster spots that they need to fill. Um, so uh, they're, they're, the Nets also have a size issue right now until they get that rectified. They're trying to find some consistency on the defensive side of the ball. So there are some reasons where you could see them slipping up here or there. Um, Philadelphia, meanwhile, they have good balance. They have good depth. You know, they didn't, you know, make that they, they were in the conversation about James Harden, uh, but they were able to keep their depth and keep things going with, with um, and, and Joel Embiid has played like an MVP this season. So uh, I, I, for that, um, I see Philadelphia finishing with the, uh, with the best record in the division. I can see, you know, Boston well coached. Boston is awfully good too. I can see Boston potentially finishing number two. Um, but I, I think it'll be neck and neck, and I'll give Brooklyn a slight edge there. Well, I appreciate you saying the Sixers. I'm a Philadelphia native, and I'm a Sixers fan, so I appreciate you saying that they're going to finish first. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but the, 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 uh, and not to not to take the compliment away, but what matters at the end of the day, and I think the Nets with two champions on their roster um, understand this as well as anybody, is, you know, a home court in any situation is great, um, but it doesn't guarantee anything. And then you add that, you know, we're we going to be with COVID, and will there be fans in the stands and all these different types of things. Um, home court may not mean as much, you know, at all. So uh, what really matters is how you perform uh, come playoff time in May, June, July for this particular season. So, yeah, I absolutely think Philadelphia, they're going to be a problem. They're going to be a big-time problem. But as you know, and Philadelphia fans know, what do you do in the postseason? Uh-huh. And uh, I think that's gonna, I think it's going to be fun to watch because I think Boston's really interesting. I think Milwaukee is really interesting. I think the Eastern Conference playoffs is going to be extremely entertaining to watch. I've asked a lot of reporters this question, you know, with the, the pandemic. What has it been like for you to be a sideline reporter without fans or just be able to do your job this year? Yeah, you know, um, I, I, I'm never going to lose my connection as a fan. Um, and uh, what brought me into sports in the first place. And uh, it's, it's certainly a privilege to be able to broadcast and announce these games, but there's not a single day that goes by that I don't think about the fan experiences being missed. And uh, remembering what it was like for me to, you know, remembering um, even before I started my career in broadcasting, just the experience of going to games, cheering for your favorite team, or booing the opposing team, or whatever it may be. And it adds so much to the uh, experience. Um, you can feel it on television when you're watching it, and of course that that experience that you have there at the venue, at the arena, at the stadium. So uh, it's been it's been tough. It's been tough because uh, it's 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 just always on my mind. It's always on my mind, and and, it, and it's heightened too because I know what Barclays Center would be like yeah, for these fans that have been waiting uh, a long time for you know. Uh, a winner or, or a team that you felt like had a legitimate champ, uh, chance to win the championship, I know what Barkley Center would be like. I know how crazy it would be. And I know that a, a lot of other teams and fan bases feel the same way for their particular franchise. So it's been, it's been tough in that regard. Um, you know, I still want to, you know, continue to tell to tell these players stories, to, to be that liaison between the players and the fan base, which is a which is a real privilege. But it's it's tough. I, I um, the fan experience. I just can't wait till everybody can get back in these buildings. Well, Michael, I'll keep up the good work with Yes Network, and uh, we'll catch you there. And I appreciate you spending a few minutes here on the Parting Shots podcast. 
Appreciate it. Appreciate it anytime. I'll be back to wrap up the podcast in just a moment. I'm Dr. Howard Zucker, New York State's health commissioner. It's flu season, and it's always a good idea to get the flu shot. But this year, it's more important than ever. A flu shot won't prevent COVID-19, but it will lower your chances of getting seriously sick from the flu. If you do get sick, the shot can lessen your symptoms and help you feel better sooner. The last thing you or the healthcare system needs during this pandemic is a bad flu season. So please, protect yourself and your community. Get a flu shot now. Sign up for the weekly Daily Gazette Sports Newsletter. The newsletter features updates on the local sports scene from our staff writers, debate on topics local and national, and reveals the latest guests for the Parting Shots podcast. The newsletter is free. To sign up, head to dailygazette.com. Hi, this is Brent Samuels, White House reporter for The Hill and a former Daily Gazette staff writer. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Back to wrap up the podcast. The NASCAR racing season is starting soon, and the Daily Gazette's auto racing contest is back. Go to dailygazette.com to sign up and play. Predict the order of finish of each race via your auto racing account. The fan with the most correct points for the race gets their name in the Daily Gazette on Friday and wins a $50 grocery card. The fan with the most overall points at the end of the season wins a $250 grocery card. Keep checking out dailygazette.com and the print edition for the latest updates in news and sports on the coronavirus pandemic. I want to thank all the doctors, nurses, and first responders who are dealing with this pandemic. We appreciate the job you're doing in this difficult time. The second wave of the coronavirus is hitting us, so please be vigilant. Even though the vaccine for the coronavirus is coming out, keep wearing the face mask while you're out. Be positive. Stay negative. That wraps up another edition of the Party Shots podcast. I'd like to thank Dr. Robert Zayas, Jason Stark, and Michael Grady for coming on the show. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email them to me at shot, that's S-C-H-O-T-T, at dailygazette.com. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Slapshots. The views expressed on the Party Shots podcast are not necessarily those of Gazette newspapers. The Party Shots podcast is a production of Gazette newspapers. I'm Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schatz. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. From the Party Shots podcast studio in Schenectady, New York, good day, good sports, be smart, stay safe, wear the face mask.